This is episode 206 with top endurance coach, author of The Uphill Athlete, and expert on high-altitude alpine endurance sports, Mr. Scott Johnston. Welcome to the Strength Running Podcast. I'm your host, Coach Jason Fitzgerald, and the episode you're about to listen to features one of the top endurance coaches in the world. Notice I didn't say running coach, because our guest, Scott Johnston, isn't just a mountain endurance running coach. He also works with some of the best cross-country skiers and alpinists in the world. We're discussing the tripod of endurance so you can run longer and faster. If you're new to the podcast, you can expect conversations just like this between me and other thought leaders in the running industry. My goal is to elevate your thinking about the sport, help you make wiser decisions about your training so that you can keep improving. Because if you better understand the process of improvement, when you recognize knowledge as a competitive advantage, you'll be a much better runner. Strength Running also has an active YouTube channel with hundreds of videos on how to run longer strength workouts, how to stay healthy and run with better form, and a lot more. Go to youtube.com slash strengthrunning, subscribe, and you'll see every video that we publish. And of course, strengthrunning.com is where it all began. For more than a decade, we've been helping runners around the world level up their training, race faster, prevent more injuries, and get stronger. You'll find our award-winning blog, our free email courses, and the full library of training programs and coaching services to help you accomplish your biggest running goals. I'm very grateful for our sponsor, Precision Hydration. You can hear me discuss all things hydration with their CEO and founder, Andy Blow, in episode 147 of the podcast. Now, I love Precision Hydration because they have a free online sweat test that you can take that will give you a personalized hydration strategy at precisionhydration.com. And our listeners can get 15% off your first order by using the code STRENGTH15 when checking out at precisionhydration.com. All right, our guest today is a juggernaut in the world of mountain and high alpine sports, Mr. Scott Johnston. He's worked with Killian Journey, arguably one of the best ultra-endurance athletes on the planet, and a host of the country's top cross-country skiers. He's a swimmer, skier, climber, and runner who's here today to talk all things endurance. What is endurance? What limits our endurance? And what can we do to improve it? We're talking about his tripod of endurance today, how to make it work for you, and the most effective strategies for gaining the aerobic fitness you need to reach your goals. Without further delay, Please enjoy my conversation with Mr. Scott Johnston. Scott, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for being here. Thanks, Jason. It's great to be here. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk with you. Well, I feel like this conversation has been almost a year in the making because it was a little over a year ago when one of my clients recommended this training book, Training for the Uphill Athlete. I had never heard of it before, and I looked on it, looked at it online thought it looked so interesting and unique as a training book for runners. And so I, I picked it up. I read it on vacation last year. And I find myself flipping through it every once in a while just to get some extra nuance on certain topics. So thank you and your co-authors, Steve and Killian, for writing this book. It's, it's great. 
Well, thanks. It, it was a long time in coming, and it's a, it was almost accidental. You know, the, the first book that uh, Steve and I wrote is Training for the New Alpinism. And, you know, probably most of the people in your audience won't be familiar with his name, but, you know, Steve was the Michael Jordan of alpine high altitude alpine climbing for much of his career. And I was his coach during that time. And in 2010, Steve had a near fatal accident that kind of ended his professional climbing career. And he wrote a memoir. And then during the, the, the book tour with that memoir, everyone was asking him, well, how did you train to do all that amazing stuff? And he ended up developing this kind of one-liner, which was, well, I could tell you, but it would take a whole book. <laughs> and I was in that winter, I think it was 2010 or 11, I was in Norway coaching skiers on the cross-country World Cup. And Steve and I were having a Skype conversation. And, and he said, you know, I think we should write down what we did for my training. And I thought, oh, nobody's going to care. Who cares? I'm, nobody trains for climbing, really. And But eventually, he talked me into it. We had Patagonia publish it, and it became hugely successful in the climbing community. But we started to get inquiries from people from other sports who said, hey, I see the principles in here could be applied to my, including swimming. Believe it or not, I was getting questions from swimming. Of course, I have a swimming background, so that helped a little bit. But then we got this email from a guy named Killian Journey, which I would assume some of your audience will know that name. Killian is you know, probably one of the, the dominant endurance athletes in the world, but certainly famous in both ski mountaineering racing and mountain running. And some people might re recall that uh, three years ago, he set the speed record on Mount Everest. And um, Killian said, hey, this is a great book, but I'd really like to see it done, repurposed and kind of focused on, on running. And these other mountain sports like mountain running, mountain and ski mountaineering, because it's not, you know, for, for some people, they would be able to tease out the principles from the climbing, the alpinism book, but many wouldn't. Or they'd, they'd look at the cover and, and you know, not even bother to pick up the book because they, well, what do I, what do, I'm not an alpinist. I don't need that. So we, we wrote that book and um, with, with, so, Killian talked me into writing the book, I should say. And I kind of volunteered and said, oh, yeah, I can do that. I was thinking I would literally just repurpose the previous book. and um, But it ended up being a, a very heavily collaborative effort between myself and, and Killian to kind of get this out there. Um, and it surprised us. I mean, it's actually been very well received. And we've kind of suddenly found ourselves, you know, being deluge with people requesting, you know, coaching and information about um, training for mount these mountain sports. And we have a website, you know, uphill athlete website that uh, people can come to and there's a lot of free information on there. But that's sort of the backstory of how we, we got to this place. Um, if you notice, the subtitle for these both these books is, you know, it's, it's a manual. Yeah, so we hope that people do, you know, return to it and use it as a manual for for themselves and can use it as a reference and go back and what was that about, you know, mitochondria or what was that about, you know, hill work or, you know, that kind of stuff. And then they can go back and refresh their, their memory over it. And that's exactly what I've been doing over the last year, literally using it as a manual just to check in on something. Let me get more information on something. And I think the perspective that the book takes is what makes it so unique and interesting, at least to me, because, you know, I'm a 
track and cross country runner. That's my background. I certainly don't really have any uh, traditional background or history doing alpinism or anything like that. And so to, to see a book like this about mountain running, and I think more generally just about endurance from that kind of a perspective is just so unique. And, and I found that the perspective you took on the training that's required on the physiology behind the training is just super fascinating. And what I'd love to do today is talk a little bit about a big concept that you have in the book called the endurance tripod. And, you know, maybe we can start with just a, a simple definition of, of what the tripod is, you know, what each leg of that tripod is before we start going into the weeds. Sure. Um, and I, this is something I think is pretty well generally accepted in the, the sports science world that endurance performance is uh, best explained or understood by three particular qualities that uh, you know an athlete might have. And you know the in, in order, I'm going to list them, Jason, in order of importance, I think. And so that, that people could understand. And then we can talk about why we list them in, in this order. So at the top of that list, in terms of predicting or, or evaluating endurance performance, is one's speed at one's anaerobic threshold. So now there, this is a little bit confusing because exercise science has not done us lay people any sort of favors by naming these things. You know, there some people will call it anaerobic threshold. Some people call it lactate threshold. Some people call it, you know, uh, maximum steady state. Some, you know, there's, there's a whole bunch of names for this, but I think all athletes, all runners know what this feels like. This is as hard as you can run for a long time. You know, this is as fast as you can go for, for a sustained period. And that sustained period depends a little bit on the event you're training for, but in general, you, we know this is what we might think of as our, kind of our red line. You know, if you go above this red line, you are guaranteed to have to slow down within a, a minute or two. And so this ability to sustain a high speed for a long term um, is determined by one's speed at this anaerobic threshold that, that we use. And I mean, I'm kind of old school. I, I grew up learning this as anaerobic threshold. And I think most people would understand what that means, even though there's still some debate in exercise science, you know, like how many angels can dance on the head of a pin kind of a debate, but I don't think it really affects the rest of us too much. So that would be, I think, perhaps the most important determinant for endurance performance. I think the next most important, and this is a little arguable, and we can kind of go down in the weeds on this if you'd like, is the economy, the runner's economy at that racing speed, at that, that sustainable speed. And the economy would be just like in your car. It's, you know, how much energy does it take to propel you at that speed? How much fuel are you using? And in the case of, you know, what we're dealing with, what we're talking about would be um, the adenosine triphosphate molecule, the ATP molecule, which is what is broken down to provide the energy for muscle contraction. And, you know, as you can be well, I'm sure you're well aware and people who aren't even well aware can sort of intuit this, that, um, you know, a, a, a more economical runner will require less energy to run at that speed. So they don't need quite as big a motor and we'll get to what, what that motor thing is in a minute, 
then you can imagine that, you know, very high level runners are probably going to be much more economical than a recreational runner. And that economy has two real components to it. One of is the, on the meta, the metabolic end of the spectrum. And the other is more in the, the neurologic or neuromuscular, you know, the ability to, uh, and also in the, kind of the, the connective tissue, tissue, uh, stretch reaction. So, you know, people that have very springy legs are going to recover more of the energy they put into each stride than somebody who, you know, runs flat footed and, um, or like me who's old now and I don't have a lot of spring in my legs anymore. Um, so those would be the, I think the two most important. And the third one, ironically, the least, the least well correlated with, uh, running endurance perform or any endurance performance is actually the maximum aerobic power, what's called the max VO2. This is the uh, maximum amount of oxygen that you can take in and utilize per minute to produce this ATP molecule that we've been alluded to. And the, strangely, and I'm, I'm sure you've run across this in your own reading, and it's, it's, is that this is the con, this is the particular leg of the tripod that many, many people, co- um, concentrate on. You know, it gets a lot of press in, especially in the lay press. And it's also used, it's touted in many studies, lab studies. And there's a reason for that. And we can get into that later if you, if you want, but that's essentially the three, um, the three legs of this tripod. Yeah. And you talk a lot about in the book about each one, about your kind of the metabolism aspect of endurance, the economy aspect of endurance, and then finally VO2 max. And I do find it interesting that those are the way the order in which they are presented in the book, the same way that you just talked about them now. And the section on your endurance metabolism is so much longer than the section on economy and VO2 max. So we might, we might spend a little bit more on that. Maybe we can talk a little bit about that right now. What are the main components of metabolic endurance? Can we talk a little bit more about that leg of the tripod? Sure. I mean, a very famous running coach, some of your audience may be familiar with Renato Canova's name. So Canova is probably the most successful uh, long distance, middle to long distance running coach ever. Um, he's coached many world champions and Olympic medalists between the 800 and the marathon. So Canova has said that endurance is a metabolic effect. Speed is a neuromuscular effect. And these two things require very different training. And I know you and your, your website, you're focused a lot on strength training for athletes. And that's kind of on that speed, uh, strength end of things. So, you know, you know, if you're not very strong, it's hard to run fast. So, you know, but it, need, but it needs to be specific strength. I mean, bench press isn't going to make you a faster runner, probably. Um, but on the metabolic end of things, the way we need to think about endurance is we, we, as in a very, very simplified form, you know, I'm sure many people have learned this in eighth grade biology and they might have forgotten by now. But we essentially, especially for endurance type events, we have two ways of producing this really critical molecule called ATP. One of them is through a, a set of reactions that require the use of oxygen, and that's the aerobic metabolism. 
And then we have another type of metabolism that can produce ATP without the use of oxygen. And that would be what's called the anaerobic or you know, anaerobic meaning no oxygen um, or the glycolytic metabolic system. And so both of these things are capable of producing uh, this ATP molecule and propelling you as you're running. Now, the aerobic one is essentially unlimited in terms of how long it can last. You know, it can just keep cranking away and it, it uses fat primarily as a fuel, although it can use carbohydrates. And um, it doesn't really have any uh, waste products that are harmful to the athlete. And, or if by harmful, I mean, you know, not health-wise, but detrimental, let's say, into that athlete's performance. So, and you know this because, you know, you can go out and walk for hours and hours and hours at a time and it's not particularly taxing for you and you recover very quickly from that um, you can, and you can sustain that output for a long time. Now, on the other side, this other metabolic me mechanism, the anaerobic or the glycolytic system that breaks down exclusively carbohydrates for use to produce this ATP, it produces some metabolites, waste products, if you will, that will have a detrimental effect. I mean, many people have heard about lactate and it's often called lactic acid, although in reality, lactic acid doesn't really exist because it's, um, it's water soluble. And so it immediately breaks down into a lactate molecule and a hydrogen ion. But that process, the lactate um, accumulation is counterproductive to endurance performance. And we've all felt this when you go over that red line I was talking about earlier, you know, you're running on borrowed time. Well, that's because this main uh, molecule lactate that's building up is causing you to slow down. And there's a whole mechanism behind that, that I don't think we should probably waste our time on right now. But so these, there's a trade-off. Do does one, the, the more one can utilize the aerobic metabolism, to propel themselves, the longer they can sustain that. And that's a really amazingly and, and happily. It's a really, it's, we are genetically predisposed towards that type of activity and that type of metabolism. And so it's, it's one of the most trainable qualities that humans have, you know, physiological qualities that humans have. We can gain aerobic capacity through you know some very simple ways you know methods you know training in an aerobic state for you know long long duration you know this is the reason that successful runners often run a very high mileage with most of that can't be very fast so they wouldn't be able to do a high mileage then the biggest stimulus to aerobic capacity development is the volume the duration of the training that, that's going on um, so that's kind of a, a quick background on you know these two metabolic pathways that that produce this energy and as an as a an endurance athlete we should be trying to enhance the that aerobic side of that metabolism uh, improve our ability to produce atp aerobically rather than spending a lot of time trying to improve our ability to produce atp anaerobically um, because like i said the the longer we can go, long, the higher, the, the faster we can move and still stay in an aerobic state is a very uh, good determinant of your performance in endurance sports. And interestingly, and this is probably something, I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but the marathon is an event that is competed at the top of one's aerobic capacity at a, at a, a metabolic event that's often called the aerobic threshold. 
So that means that these guys that are running 205 marathon, they're, they're not running harder than other people. They're just, they're running at the same intensity metabolically as somebody who's running a four hour marathon. They're just going a whole lot faster because their aerobic metabolism can produce so much more ATP. So that's a, like a, I think it helps people frame this, this idea of why this is so important. And considering I've forgotten almost everything from high school biology, that was definitely very helpful. Um, now, Scott, you used a really interesting analogy in the book to talk more about this issue. You used a vacuum cleaner analogy to talk about removing lactate during high-intensity running. Can you talk more about how this analogy works and how we can better understand it? Yeah, I was trying to figure out a way to explain this. And I ended up, you know, after writing the first book, I had, it was about four years between books. And I had to explain this concept to so many people that I kind of came up with this uh, vacuum cleaner um, analogy that I then used in the second book. But essentially, so this molecule lactate that we've talked about, um, it's a partially broken down uh, carbohydrates, a partially broken down sugar. And it still has energy available in its bonds. So it's not totally a waste product. If we can find a way to extract that energy, then it, we can utilize that. Well, it turns out that these very well ad aerobically adapted slow twitch muscle fibers, which are the dominant ones we're using in these, you know, endurance type events that Lactate is their preferred fuel because it can be taken into the metabolic pathway that produces this ATP. It can kind of shortcut that because it's already partially broken down. And so this, this, what would otherwise be a, a waste product that would accumulate and cause you to have to slow down can end up being shuttled from the places in the, the muscle fibers that it's being produced to their neighbors, which are these slower twitch the uh, more aerobically adapted fibers and used as fuel. So you don't get that accumulation of uh, lactate that ends up causing a person to slow down. Now, the, the vacuum cleaner analogy comes about because the aerobic capacity of these slow twitch fibers is largely what determines how much of this lactate they can take up and, and utilize as fuel. And this was a, this was an, um, a discovery by a physiologist named George Brooks in the early 80s, and he called it the lactate shuttle. And this talked in his case, he was looking at, and in our case too, that looking at the how the lactate is shuttled from where it's made to where it can be used as a fuel. And we can enhance that lactate shuttle mechanism. But the bigger reservoir we have to take away this lactate, to put it someplace where it can be used into these slow twitch fibers, the higher intensity we can sustain for a longer time because we aren't going to be accumulating that, that lactate. So these slow twitch fibers or this aerobic capacity, especially of those slow twitch fibers is the vacuum cleaner. And the bigger that vacuum cleaner is, the more lactate it can take out of the system, which means you'll be able to run faster for longer. I love it. That's what every runner wants to hear. Exactly. We all want that. <laughs> is building a bigger vacuum, a more powerful vacuum, really about doing more and more aerobic work? Uh, mostly easy running, but we can include some aerobic workouts in there too. Um, is that the path to building that bigger vacuum? 
Absolutely. Yeah. That, as I mentioned earlier, the biggest stimulus to aerobic capacity development, um, especially in these slow twitch fibers, is what, which was what we're predominantly talking about with the vacuum cleaner model, is the volume of training. And it's why you see professional marathoners, you know, routinely logging 100 mile weeks, because that's what it takes you know, to maximize. Now, of course, as with, with running, especially, we're balanced on this razor's edge of, you know, we know that high volume is beneficial, but we also know high volume carries a significant risk of injury and overtraining and that sort of thing. So it, it has to be balanced on an individual you know, basis. You know, for some people, a high volume of running might be 20 miles a week. And other people, you know, there, there's certainly many stories of people running, you know, 150 plus miles per week. So it's, it's individualized, of course. So I don't want to have people suddenly think they need to jump out there and be running 100 miles a week and then end up two weeks later crippled. But yes, it's the volume of training. And because you're doing this high volume, it's kind of of necessity has to be low intensity. You can't go out and run at that red line every time you go out and run out the door, or you won't be able to recover and you won't be able to handle a high volume. So yeah, it's, it's the volume. Now at the risk of maybe beating this analogy to death, uh, can we maybe make less mess that the vacuum has to clean up in the first place? How, how is that thought about in this way of thinking about endurance? Yeah. Producing less lactate. Exactly. Ideally, what you want, so, so the ability to produce lactate is actually a beneficial thing because that's, what's, that's what you're going to use in that final 200 meters of whatever race you're in where you kick it into the highest gear you can at that point, fatigue you know, dependent. Um, it's that, that glycolytic or anaero anaerobic pathway that could produce this ATP for high-powered uh, movement very quickly. So, you want, you want some anaerobic capacity. It's important to have that. Unless you're, you know, people who are running, you know, these ultra long distances, like many of the folks that I work with who are running, you know, 100 mile races, anaerobic capacity isn't particularly important to them because they just, they can't act. They, the events are too long to try to access that, um, that level of power. But for shorter events, yes, even up to the marathon, having some anaerobic capacity is important. And so being able to actually to produce more lactate is kind of a beneficial thing if you need that high power, you know, sprint at the end of the race. If you don't have it, if you only have aerobic capacity, you won't be able to access that, that next, that gear that you might be looking for. But we want to delay that process that, you know, as you're, so you're, you're alluding to something that is not totally well understood. I think the consensus and certainly what Brooks and, and many coaches say, is that we don't have the ability – well, the only way we can produce less lactate at the same speed would be through higher economy, better economy. And that would mean we could run faster aerobically and we're not producing as much lactate. But the big limitation to this vacuum cleaner thing is not the amount of lactate that's produced. It's the amount of lactate that can be shuttled away and utilized. So I don't really think there's a, a way to – other than becoming a more economical runner a great way to reduce the lactate production. Uh, that's interesting to consider there. Now, one aspect of this aerobic endurance that we're all trying to build as endurance runners is uh, you talk in the book about aerobic deficiency syndrome. And it, it's a relatively small section, but 
it sort of gave me language to talk about something I had experienced in my coaching practice with runners who almost can't even jog without an extremely high heart rate and, you know, getting their respiration to very high levels. Uh, can we talk a little bit about what this is, what causes it, and, and how we can address it? You bet. Um, I think, I think, you know, I think this is actually a problem of epidemic proportions. And you as a coach have undoubtedly seen it. I wasn't particularly aware of it before I wrote these books. And especially in the first book, I don't even, I barely mentioned it. Um, because most of my coaching career and my own athletic career had been at a very high level with, you know, being very well trained myself as an athlete. Um, you know, professionally, basically, and then working with professional level, um, especially cross country skiers and, and runners, I hadn't ever encountered someone with aerobic deficiency. And then when we wrote this book, and we started dealing with more recreational athletes, people were coming to us, and I was sort of amazed at their aerobic deficit, you know, the fact that they really couldn't produce much of this ATP, which is why what you're saying is true, then they can't it's, they can barely go beyond a walk before their heart rate starts to spike and they, they start to utilize that anaerobic glycolytic system to produce the ATP because they're, you know, let's, let's assume, make a very simple model that it requires, you know, 10 ATP. I and mean, this is, you know, I'm making a very, uh, I'm just pulling these numbers out, but use them for example, 10 ATP for you to run a, you know, an, an eight minute mile. And your aerobic system can only produce three ATP. Well, the balance of that five ATP that it needs to use to that your body, your muscles need in order to run at that pace that you've asked it to run at is going to have to come from the glycolytic or the anaerobic metabolic system. And that has, your, so what will happen is your heart rate will go up and ventilation will go up. And that's the main thing people will notice. They'll start breathing much more heavily. And that when this happens at a very low uh, speed for most people that are people that are healthy, let's say your audience in general, um, that's an indication that they are aerobically deficient. In other words, what it means is their aerobic system just can't produce enough ATP to propel them at the speed that they would like to. Um, and, and going back to that marathon analogy, I mean, these guys that are running a 210 or 205 marathon, they're in that aerobic state. I mean, they are at, they're running at a conversational pace, which is sort of staggering for most of us to think about <laughs> at the, the speed that they're attaining. Um, so they're in the same metabolic state as somebody who's aerobically deficient and has to walk in order to maintain a conversational pace. I found it very interesting that I've seen this with folks who are actually athletes, maybe not runners, maybe not endurance athletes from swimming or cycling or some other discipline, but, you know, an athlete who might have previously played baseball, they've spent years lifting weights, you know, maybe doing some uh, high intensity interval training. And so it, I, I found that it can be not necessarily something that afflicts, you know, the, the couch potato kind of idea of a person. It's just when, you know, maybe your anaerobic fitness, those pathways are highly developed, but you've never spent much time working on those aerobic pathways. And so it is not necessarily something that is present among, you know, the, the couch potato class, but it's more, you know, other types of athletes too can be like this. Isn't that right? Absolutely. It's really prevalent 
in you know, people because to train this aerobic metabolic pathway so that you improve your aerobic capacity, it takes a lot of low intensity training. I mean, a high volume of low intensity training. Well, if you're a, a baseball player or football player or a weightlifter, you don't do much of that. You need your energy for high powered, um, you know, sprints and that sort of thing that last, you know, you know, a few seconds to less than a minute often. And that requires the ability to produce a lot of, of ATP anaerobically. And we are amazingly, as, as hopefully your audience recognizes, we are incredibly adaptable animals. And if you train your body for years and years and years to develop a high anaerobic capacity, the ability to produce ATP uh, anaerobically, you'll get really good at that. But at the expense of the aerobic pathway, because it's not needed, it doesn't get the kind of stimulus that it needs in order to develop. And so it takes a real concerted effort to turn that around. And so when you take somebody who, let's say, has historically been lifting weights or, or doing, you know, some sort of high, high intensity interval classes two or three times a week, and then they want to get into endurance running, it's going to take you know, months and months of this steady state, low intensity uh, volume in order for the aerobic system to finally go, oh, I guess I am needed after all. And I'm going to start you know, developing these adaptations that allow the aerobic system to produce more energy. And usually what will happen during that time is that the anaerobic capacity will drop. So the aerobic and the anaerobic capacities are always kind of in a, it's sort of a, they're in, they're in um, balance. They should be in balance with one another, but they are at war with one another. So if you train to improve your aerobic capacity, your anaerobic capacity will go down. Vice versa, if you train to improve your anaerobic capacity, it's going to depress your aerobic capacity. So for this is what's really interesting for middle distance athletes because they need a very high anaerobic capacity. You know, people that are running, let's say, between you know, 800 and 3,000, 4,000, even 5,000 meters, they need a very high anaerobic capacity, but they also need a very high aerobic capacity. So they have to balance the training um, so that they kind of optimize the, that balance. Um, because if you did, you know, they're going to need a different balance than a marathoner or a 100 miler. So it sounds like the solution to this problem is sort of like the training goals of, of most endurance athletes. It's a lot of high volume, low intensity aerobic exercise. Absolutely. And, you know, whether you use a heart monitor or have been tested to determine this upper limit of your aerobic capacity, which would be called the aerobic threshold, a good metric for this is can you talk in full sentences? Are you conversational? And I don't mean, you know, three word sentences, but, you know, normal sentences without gasping for breath. If you can do that, you are in your aerobic zone, um, if you want to use the zone type of intensity terminology. Um, and that's a very good way to tell. Now, what, what you brought up is that for some people, that one might even mean walking, you know, initially. Someone, one of these potential, this baseball player person we're talking about, who has probably very limited aerobic capacity, that might indeed mean walking for a while until they, and then they can move to like a walk and jog kind of progression and then eventually start running. But I have seen, um, I've seen people improve their um, aerobic threshold running pace from 12 minute miles to eight minute miles in six months of this type of training. 
it, it will happen. You're, we are because we are genetically predisposed towards aerobic metabolism. If you give it, if you give your body the right stimulus, unless you're some sort of you know off the end of the bell curve um, freak, you will respond quite well to this. It's, it's highly, it's, like I said, it's probably one of the most trainable qualities that humans have. Yeah. I think we're particularly suited to that kind of exercise just because of who we are as, as humans, as animals. Evolutionarily. Yeah. Yep. Exactly. Now, uh, I would love to move on to movement economy, the second leg of the tripod. I know we spent a lot of time on metabolism, but that is sort of the most important one. I might argue one of the more complex areas of the tripod. Um, so when you're talking about movement economy, are we, are we talking about running economy, your efficiency? Right. The, the amount of, it's usually measured by how much oxygen it takes to propel you at a certain speed. Because the, the use of, since we know how, what the reactions are that are taking place at the cellular level, measuring the amount of oxygen that you're taking in during and, and utilizing at running at a certain speed is a good proxy for the amount of energy you're producing aerobically. So yeah, that's the, the using using this movement economy, um, and and you've of course YouTube is full of videos about running form, you know, and good running form, poor running form. There's a lot of information out there, but the mechanics of running are are important. You know, there you know there's still some argument over you know forefoot, midfoot, rearfoot strikes and all that kind of thing. I think if you go look at, especially in the shorter distances, by shorter, I mean marathon and below, you will see the dominant, the, the most dominant athletes all look very similar in, in their running form. It, they, they have a similar stride. And um, that's because that's probably, the athlete knows better than the scientist what's the optimal movement patterns for them. And you're given you know, the fact that, you know, Running is an amazing sport because you there's so many different body types that do well with with running. You know, people with long torsos, short torsos, long legs, short legs. And you still see people performing amazingly well. But if you if you put aside, let's say the the difference in length of femurs in people or something like that, you would still say, okay, this person who's five foot six looks a whole lot like this guy who's also a very you know, talented runner who's six foot two. And so you, I think one of the ways people can, can improve running economy is through you know, watching good runners run and then trying to emulate that. And if you can't, especially if you don't have an, an on-site running coach that, that can help analyze your stride. Um, but that's, I think that that's a key component. And then also the elasticity of the connective tissue, especially in the lower legs, but the upper legs as well. But, you know, how springy is your Achilles tendon? So how much energy is going to be returned when the, you know, the eccentric loading that happens when you land on that foot out in front um, in the, the, the Achilles tendon is stretched? How much of that stretch energy gets put back into propelling you into the next, the next stride? Um, and, and clearly, some people have better, more springy legs than others. And I don't know how much that's genetic. I'm sure it can be trained. Um, but it, it requires a lot of time because those connective tissues are very poorly vascularized. In fact, they vascularized roughly one seventh the density of muscle. 
So they adapt at roughly one-seventh the speed of muscle, which is why running injuries to lower legs especially are so prevalent. People go out and you know, they start running and they, their muscles adapt pretty quickly and they get fit and they think, oh, well, I'm going to run you know, 10 miles longer next week or I'm going to run you know, X percent faster next week. And this, the, these fascia and the tendons are not ready for that. And so it takes a long time. I, I have a little, I, I would tell my athletes is when they're, even when they're coming back from a break, a long break, you need to have a hundred miles in your legs before you're really ready to train as a runner, I think, and safe, train safely. And, you know, for some people that might be just, you know, two or three weeks and other people's people that might be five or six months for them to develop that kind of running volume. But so the economy end of things is, you know, what I, I think that's an area, another area that we can, I have seen in, both in cross country skiing and running double digit gains in economy with proper training, with technique training. And interestingly, there was a study done by some Swedes in the late eighties, a couple of Swedish guys looking at world-class even world-class runners. So like they were looking at marathoners like who ran between at that time, probably, you know, like 215 to 230 marathon. And they noticed even among that group, a discrepancy of almost 20% in running economy. So it was costing some of those people 20% more energy to run at those race paces than, than the more economical runners. So you could imagine if you could improve I mean, that's like improving your max VO2 or your lactate threshold by 20%. So I think that's a, this is another area of pretty low-hanging fruit for a lot of people, the ability to improve running economy. So can we talk about how to do that? You mentioned emulating better runners, faster runners. And, and that just speaks to me personally, because as someone who kind of was introduced to the sport of running on a cross country and a track team in high school. And then I went and competed in college. I was always around people who are much better than me. And I loved watching them run, trying to run with better form. And, and in a way I, I sort of had to, you know, you're thrown into these workouts and to, to even hit the paces that we were trying to hit. Like I was just trying to conserve energy left and right and have no wasted movement. And so that aspect of improving your form is, is very much, uh, to me, a very effective one. But, you know, for the person who isn't around a bunch of faster runners, maybe they're not on a team, what are some practical ways that they can go ahead and improve their economy and the mechanics of their running on a day-to-day -day basis? You know, they're kind of, you know, an amateur runner, you know, they're like, they're like me, they're trying to run five, six, seven days a week. But, uh, what are, are they workouts? Is it drills? Is it strength training? Is it simply a lot of experience? How can we do this? It's all of those things. So, but let's, <laughs> so I will, um, I'm going to bring up probably a controversial name these days and that's Al, Alberto Salazar. Um, and I was at a coaching conference many years ago where Alberto was a presenter and he was at that time coaching a young woman, um, high school phenom, who unfortunately didn't end up having a, a good racing career, perhaps through some problems with her training. But he was talking about how you know, she was so gifted that she had never had to learn good technique. And so she, she ran with terrible economy. 
but she was still dominant in in her you know in her high school career. And so he had he had taken it upon himself to help her try to improve that technique. And so what his idea was, and I think this is a, a valid one, is like if, if you can't run a hundred yards with or even fifty yards with this good technique or ten strides with this good technique, then you need to learn, you know, you need to start off by being able to run, you know, 10 perfect strides. And then maybe you slow down and walk or jog and then go rest up a little bit. Boom, do another 10 of those. Um, Until you can, and Jack Daniels has said the same thing in, in some of his writings about, you know, you need to be able to run perfectly all, all the time. But if you can't run perfectly, you know, for even a very short distance, that's, that's important. Um, it's important to acknowledge and figure out a way to train it. And the way to train it is to break it into the, what, like repetitions or interval tile, style training. It doesn't have to be hard and fast, but it, it does need to be perfect. Technique needs to be good. Now, how does a person do that? Hopefully, you know, before they go out the door, you go and watch David Rudisha run an 800 on YouTube, um, something like that. And then you, okay, you, have you visualized that? I take, I'm taking, I'm David Rudisha when I'm out there in my little, you know, three mile jog today. And I'm going to run and look like David Rudisha until I feel that technique fall apart. And I, as soon as I begin to feel the technique go away, then I slow down and maybe I even walk and rest up enough that I can get it back together again and then try it again. And eventually you'll be able to run farther and farther with that good technique. Another method that, you know, it's a little contrived, but I have watched a lot of people use this and is to have a mirror with a pen of treadmill and or video, you know, with, with, with cameras nowadays, you know, you can have a friend, a spouse, um, or even set your, you know, a spouse go ride a bicycle along beside you and, and film you while you are running to see what you actually look like and see if your, your visual, um, image that you have in your brain actually looks like that person that's running and you can do this you know you could or if you have access to a treadmill you set up your camera and you know your iphone and film yourself on a treadmill it's another way to to do this Um, and it's remarkable how often it'll be that we don't look anything like what we think we look like Um, but uh, so that's those are my the ways i have used personally and been quite successful with this idea of short repetitions of perfect technique and you know, doing it perfectly over and over and over. It's a little bit like, you know, learning to play a piece of music. You often break it down into little pieces. You learn this piece and you practice it perfectly because if you don't practice it, this is the reason that this can be very difficult to change for adults, especially is we have now been like the you know, recreational runner. Maybe they've been running 10 years or something. They may have had 10 years to develop some really bad habits. So they've got literally millions and millions of repetitions of this improper or less, let's say not improper, but uh, less effective running technique, these motor pathways between their brain and the muscle, but they need to unwind and correct. And it's not going to be an easy process. It's, it's one of the things, you know, children learn this kind of stuff very quickly and ease. I've coached a lot of junior athletes in my day. And it's sort of, it's, it's actually a great ego boost for a coach because it makes you feel like, boy, I'm really a good coach because you, you can make these kids into, you know, they can change so fast. Whereas you take, you know, the 50-year-old guy who's you know, been running for five years, you go, okay, this is going to take years of probably of concentrated work 
to really turn this around, you know? And so it's, it's, it takes time. It takes time and effort. That might seem daunting, but I think it's something that you can easily check in with yourself and pay attention to on some of your easy runs, just to make sure that, you know, you're kind of running with the form that you want to be running in. So even though you said it might take years, to me, that doesn't seem like, uh, oh, this is just going to be too hard for me to even tackle. I'm not going to do it at all. You know, anything in running, I think, takes a very long time, whether you want to build fitness or get good at a certain event or improve your form. So I think they're all very worthy goals for runners to, to go after. Well, and they're, they're going to happen incrementally. I mean, it's not like you're going to go from being a terrible runner to looking like David Rudisha in five years. Well, but in the process of doing that, you're going to have see these incremental breakthroughs. And, you know, just like your, your PRs and races are going to come down, your aerobic capacity is going to get better, your, your economy or your running technique is going to be better. So it's, it's not like a, an on-off switch. You, you will notice gains. And another, once a person gets to where they can, um, they, they're pretty confident in that technique. One of my favorite workouts is to, to introduce strides into a, a normal, easy distance run. So, you know, maybe in a five mile run, I'll have them throw in, you know, six or eight, uh, 10 to 15 second strides where they, they are just focused on a relaxed, fast technique. You know, they're not sprinting by any means. It should, you know, maybe they're going up to like 5k pace or something, but they, it should be relaxed. That's the biggie is relaxation. You don't want them just to be, you don't want to be fighting it and enforcing it. That will definitely not work. And so you only run as fast as your technique is capable of at that time. Yeah, strides, I think, are, are just very fundamental to a lot of runners training. And by the way, I can't believe you used that David Rudisha example because I have done exactly that. I feel like you were talking about me. <laughs> well, he's such a phenomenal example of a beautiful runner. How can you not watch him run and just be in awe of his graceful smoothness? It's just so wonderful. Um Scott, before we wrap, I want to talk about the third tripod, the least important leg of this tripod, uh, VO2 max. This is something that uh, I've had a lot of runners come to me. They say they've got it measured. Now that they know their VO2 max, they can get to training. So maybe we can talk more about what VO2 max is and maybe why it's not actually that important. Well, it is and it isn't. I shouldn't have said that. So VO2 max has a long history. Um, uh, A.V. Hill, an exercise scientist in the early 20th century, was the one who kind of came up with the concept of how much oxygen a person was able to take in and utilize, and he was able to measure it. And ever since then, so for the last 100 plus years, it has been used in laboratories um, as a way to measure endurance performance in an athlete who's running on a treadmill. Now, it could also be done you know, cycling on a stationary bike, but we're talking runners. And, and the reason they do that is it's, we know, we know we have the technology to do that. And especially nowadays, the technology is not that expensive. Um, these metabolic carts that are used to measure uh, all these qualities, but especially max VO2 are accessible and, and relatively cheap. Um, health club, many health clubs have them. They offer max VO2 tests. And so what has happened is it's moved out of the, this test has moved out of the realm of being used for scientific studies and being used for um, analysis. So, and the reason it's, it's a handy thing to use is let's say you are wanting to study the effects of 
a certain training protocol on a group of athletes. And so you get 20, um, 20 people and they, they, they do this, whatever this training protocol is you want to, to see and you want to see how it's affecting them. A very simple and relatively easy way to do that is to measure their max VO2 before you apply this you know, six-week protocol of, of workouts and then to measure it at the end. And you see if this, you know, that will tell you if their aerobic power has improved. And so then you could say, oh, well, this is an effective method for improving aerobic power. Now, there's some problems with that that I'll get to in a minute, but it doesn't have anything to do with performance. I mean, it's the correlation between max VO2 and endurance performance is relatively poor. I mean, the, 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 the first two legs of this tripod that I mentioned, they correlate, anybody that knows much about statistics, those things correlate with endurance performance at about an 80% range, or point, an R of 0.8. Max VO2 correlates with about an R of 0.4 or 5. So it's a much poor, poor, more poor indicator of endurance performance. Um, it just so happens, the reason it's become this gold standard is it just so happens that most world-class athletes will have quite high max VO2s. And that that would tend to pe- – people then see that correlation as causation. They say, oh, well, these guys can run that fast because they have a high max VO2, which in some cases is true. But I'm going to give you a couple of examples right now of uh, two cross-country skiers that I worked with extensively for a long time. Um, the first one was a guy. And this guy had a max VO2 of 90 milliliters per kilogram per minute. Now, that's astronomically high. You know, a a very high number would be, for most people, is, you know, 80 would be considered very much world class. Even 70, 75 is quite. And then he was was one of the highest ever recorded. So, but his, his endurance performance on the World Cup in ski racing was pretty miserable. It wasn't very good. The reason was his economy was so poor that it cost him a huge amount of that big aerobic power base that he had in order to go that fast. It'd be like having a you know 500 horsepower Ferrari with low air, air pressure in your tires. You know you, you got the big engine, but you just can't go very fast with it because you don't have any air in your tires. And so he never really achieved uh, you know, the kind of potential that I think he could have achieved had he had better economy. Um, he came to me near the twilight of his career and tried to, I, I tried to, and I worked with him and it did improve and I helped him get to a couple of Olympics, but um, it, it was too, kind of too late. By then he was you know, in his early thirties. But on the other end of the spectrum, I worked with a young woman who I coached her from the time she was you know, 12 or until, until she was about 20. And, she had a rather mediocre max VO2, you know, sort of a depressingly low max VO2. In fact, when she made the U.S. ski team, they tested her and the lab technician said, oh, I think you should take up another sport. <laughs> um, you just don't have a big enough motor. Well, interestingly, she went on and had an incredibly successful career, one of the most successful cross-country ski careers of any U.S. woman she ended up re- repeatedly ranked in the top five in the world in World Cup standings with a relatively modest, I mean, much more than a couch potatoes number, but not like a world-class athlete, Max VO2. So there you can see two examples where Max VO2 did not correlate well at all. 
with endurance performance. And so those were the things that first really made me sit up and take notice and go, well, why is everybody so fixated then on max VO2? Um, I think it's because we yearn for, and it would be wonderful to have a single number like horsepower that, you know, like, okay, this is how much aerobic power you have. This is, this is, you know, like a, it's the gold standard. It's going to tell you how fast you can run, but it, it doesn't, unfortunately, in the real world, we are so much more complex organisms than, than that. So having a high max VO2 is beneficial, no question about it. But having a, a lower max VO2 isn't the, you know, the kiss of death. And I think what's important to take away from this, you know, a couple of things. First of all, max VO2 is what is known as a first wave response to training. So if you, and this is one of the reasons that I think it's gotten overhyped, is that you take these athletes I was talking about, or test subjects, let's call them, and you apply this you know, six-week training protocol and their max VO2 improves, well, if they're quite untrained, they're going to see a massive gain in max VO2. And that's because the heart muscle, which is predominantly responsible for how much um, oxygen you can pump out of your heart at one time, and how much blood will come out um, with each stroke, the heart muscle adapts very quickly to any kind of training stress. But it also has upper limits of how much adaptation it can make. So you'll see very rapid gains among children and people who are very poorly trained, but then it plateaus. And, I, and I've worked with you know, World Cup uh, cross-country skiers who their, their max VO2 doesn't, doesn't change for 10 years in a row, does not change at all. And their results just keep getting better and better and better because they can work on other things. And the, the last thing I want to say about that is I think it's a mistake for people to become fixated on it because we have so, so much of max VO2 quality is probably genetically determined. So there's very little you can, can do about it. It's going to have to have to do a lot with heart size and the, um, the stretchiness, the, the elasticity of the pericardium. It, it, and if you're, if you chose your parents well, you may very well have, you know, the, the ability to develop a high max VO2. So it's just one of those things that, you know, we can't really, we don't have that much ability to change once we're a mature, you know, athletically mature, somebody who's been training for several years. Yeah, I participated in a study over a decade ago at the University of Maryland where I was able to get on a treadmill and do some of these tests and I got my VO2 max score. I think it was like 69 point something. And I was like, oh, this is great. And then I was like, well, that should mean I'm a lot faster than I currently am. And it was just interesting because I didn't actually do anything with that information. Once I knew my VO2 max, it was almost purely for entertainment value because it doesn't impact how I structure my workouts. It doesn't impact my race strategy. It doesn't really have any impact on my actual training or racing. And, and I think that's a, a helpful way to think about it too. Like you could know your VO2 max or not know your VO2 max. And that's probably not going to change how you're preparing for a race at the end of the day. Yeah. Basically it gives you bragging rights. I mean, I, that's <laughs> yeah. the way I look at it. You know, it's a little bit like going into the bar and bragging about the fact you've got a 500 horsepower Ferrari parked outside, but you know, how does that really affect your life? And in your, your case, I think is a perfect example of that. And I would agree. I tend to, 
I never recommend. In fact, this young woman I was just talking about, I shielded her from getting a max VO2 test for most of my time coaching or all of my time coaching her until she got picked up by the US ski team. And then they just run her through these battery of tests. But because I didn't want her to feel like, oh my God, I don't have a big enough motor to do this sport. Um, so I'm, I'm totally on board with, with you. I think there's a myth about max VO2 about it's not only its importance, but how much we can change it um, and how it can be used to inform your training. I like to tell people they don't give the awards at the end of the race out to who has the highest max VO2. They give the award out to who ran the fastest. And so we should be concentrating on what does it take to make us run faster for longer? And these other two legs of that tripod, I think, are, are so much more important and so much more trainable than max VO2. Right. And if it really was that magic number that could predict your performance, we might as well not run the race at the end of the day anyway. We might as well just measure everyone's VO2 max and put it up on the leaderboard. And there you go. That's exactly right. I had a discussion like this one time with one of my cohorts when I was cross country ski racing. And he said, you know, maybe we should just show up at the at the starting line with our training logs and compare training logs. And then whoever has the most impressive training log gets the, you know, the blue medal, the blue ribbon. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm completely on board with you. I think that, you know, there's, it's, it's sad that in the popular media, the popular press and the mind of the many recreational athletes that it has taken on so much importance. I mean, I, you, you may see it too published in magazines and whatnot. Well, you need to go to the track and do these max VO2 intervals. Yeah, I mean, that's, you know, max VO2 is a proxy for performance, but it's not even a very good proxy for performance. Absolutely. Uh, Scott, this was such a fascinating discussion about all things endurance. And I know that we only touched uh, just a sliver of what your book covers. And so I will certainly recommend it. I was so glad that one of my clients recommended this to me a little over a year ago because it is one of my more unique training books that I have, and I have quite a few. Is there anything I might have missed about the topic of endurance and the tripod that I might have missed that you think is important for our audience of runners to understand whether that might be something that they can do in their training to improve these areas or, or maybe a, a myth or something that we frequently believe that isn't necessarily true? Yes, I think there is something we could quickly discuss, and that is this notion of strength, which I know you're a big fan of, and you push that on your website a lot. And that is one way to increase running economy is through increasing strength, because the farther you go for each stride, the fewer strides you are going to have to take. And some of you probably know the name Meb. Um, very famous uh, marathon runner. I won't even try to butcher his last name. So, um, but he recently, as you know, ran a quite a fast marathon at the age of, I think, 40 a few years ago. And he got together with a strength coach named Brian Flaherty, who worked for Nike. And they, you know, he, this was a guy who's been running his whole life, had, you know, multiple uh, Olympics under his belt and I think some Olympic medals. But he was near the twilight of his career. So the chances of changing this guy's metabolism, you know, whether it's you know, the basic aerobic metabolism or even trying to improve his max VO2, probably pretty slim in being able to do that. So what they focused on is coach and this, this strength trainer 
Ryan Flaherty, was on increasing his leg strength and power. And they had him doing hex bar deadlifts with, you know, maximum strength protocol. So it's like, in his case, he was doing one rep sets with max weight. And at the end of this, they tested his stride length was two inches longer after a training, you know, after a significant several months of training like this. And he credited that to his marathon performance that, you know, that was, I think they counted it was something like, you know, several hundred fewer strides he had to take during the race because he was going two inches farther in each stride. So that's another great way to build strength is, excuse me, to build a improving economy is through strength training. And real quickly on that, I think people, you know, as you, I'm sure you're very well aware, many runners are kind of, when you mention the word strength training, they just run away. They don't want to hear about it. Um, and I know you understand very well the importance of it for both performance, but also uh, injury prevention. But I think one thing that runners can, we can do as coaches is explain to people that strength training doesn't have to take place in a gym with a barbell. You know, you, anytime you run fast or run steeply uphill, you're you know, in a way building strength. And Certainly, some of the you know, most successful runners in the world today, the Kenyans that we see, they don't have access to weight ropes, but they do have access to some big hills. And they use those hills for their strength training because they're, they run up that hill very fast. It's building strength in their legs. And you know, these strides are kind of a, a way to sort of slip in a little more strength, a little bit more strength into your legs. I mean, certainly, lifting weights is the norm. And but for people who are don't want to go into weight rooms or just the idea of lifting weights is sort of counter to them. Um, my favorite workout is one that I basically stole from Renato Canova, which is hill sprints. You know, we just, we do short repetitions, 10 to 12 seconds, maximum effort on a steep grade. And that will build a tremendous amount of running specific power and strength in your legs. So I'll just leave it at that, that I think that's another on tap thing for most runners that most runners would be advised to do some form of strength training, whether it's in a gym or on a hill. Well, the strength running guy really appreciates you mentioning strength. It's a, such a critical part of runners training. And, you know, it's funny, I just published something a couple of weeks ago talking about how you can get really strong without ever getting into a gym and hill sprints is a big part of that. And, if you think about it, anytime you're running really fast, you're doing something very similar to lifting weights because you're recruiting a lot of muscle fibers at one time. In one case, you're trying to lift a heavy weight. In the other case, maybe you're trying to propel yourself up a steep hill at a very fast pace. And so the mechanism is a little bit different, but some of the effects are exactly the same. And so I, I really appreciate that. Scott, this was so fascinating. I loved our chat. I know we went a little bit long, but I appreciate it. Uh, folks can definitely check out the book, Training for the Uphill Athlete, a manual for mountain runners and ski mountaineers. That wasn't really our topic today. But where else can folks learn more about your work and how you're helping the endurance community? Well, our website, uphillathlete.com, is a simple way to get started. Um, there's over 300 free articles on you know, training for endurance. And uh, of course, the books are a resource, but we have a very active forum on the website. So people can come in there and ask questions or just browse around. Um, 
you know, we're, we're focused on all these mountain sports, everything from, you know, like we just finished our Everest season. So we had tons of people climbing Everest this year. Um, but we also focus a lot on mountain runners and of course, ski mountaineering racing is a very popular sport, especially in Europe. So we're kind of, we don't do much with road running or we don't do anything really with road running or certainly track. But, um, you know, I think most people, if they could get past the hurdle of saying, well, I'm not an alpinist or I'm not a mountaineer or I'm not a, a mountain trail runner, you'll still find, I think, some really valuable um, tips on, you know, and to help you understand correct training methodologies. Well, I certainly found that in the book. So, Scott, thanks for all you do. Appreciate you being here. My pleasure. Thank you. All right. That's our show today, runners. If only my high school biology teacher made learning about the body as interesting as Scott. Don't miss his incredible book, The Uphill Athlete, or website, uphillathlete.com. Our sponsor, Precision Hydration, has generously offered 15% off your first order with code STRENGTH15. If you remember back to last year, I interviewed their founder and CEO, Andy Blow, about everything you can imagine about hydration in episode 147. Well, Andy was super nice, and he set me up with a custom sweat test, and I learned a lot of new things about my body in this process, so I don't sweat very much, but when I do, I'm practically an outlier in terms of how salty my sweat is. So for long efforts when it's hot, I certainly have to pay far more attention to my electrolyte levels so I don't crash. Now, of course, there isn't a one-size-fits-all approach to hydration for runners, which is why I love that Precision Hydration helps athletes refine their hydration strategy for whatever event you might be training for. And if you can't get a custom sweat test done, then no sweat. They have a free online sweat test that you can take at precisionhydration.com, and that will give you your own personalized hydration strategy. Now, it is super hot here in Denver, Colorado. I am struggling through 90 to 100 degree days, and so I know I'm paying a lot more attention to my hydration and electrolyte needs, especially when I go long, 45 minutes to an hour, or especially if I go into the mountains and do a longer bike ride where I'm going to lose a lot more fluids. And I'm very grateful that Precision Hydration offers a whole variety of products to help, from tablets to packets to capsules, so whatever you might prefer personally. Check out Precision Hydration at precisionhydration.com, and don't forget that you can get 15% off your first order of electrolytes that match how you sweat by using the code STRENGTH15 at checkout. All right, that's it from me today. Thank you for being here. I appreciate you, and we'll be in touch soon. 